0: We're continuing our Follow the King" series on the Gospel of Mark tonight, and we'll be reading Mark 2:18 to 3:6. I read this uh, story from the Gospel of Matthew a few weeks ago in our morning, serv- morning Sabbath sermon series, And so I'm not going to talk about the aspects of this text that focus on Sabbath observance. If you want to hear about that, you've got to go to the website, dig up the old sermon, I'm sliding in a little self-promotion tonight. But what I want to focus on as we read this text tonight is some different possibilities for how we respond to who Jesus is and what he calls us to do. So with that, let's read from the Gospel of Mark. We'll read from 2.18 to 3.6. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain field, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, "'Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath?' He answered, "'Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need?' In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is God's word for us gathered here tonight. So today we're going to work through this text on kind of two tracks. We're going to talk first about how the Pharisees respond to Jesus, and then think how that shows us how the world in general often responds to Jesus. And then we'll look a bit about how Jesus presents himself, who he says he is and what he says he's all about in this text. And then we'll think about how we as believers respond to what Jesus tells us about himself. So our first point for tonight in this text is that the Pharisees are challenging Jesus here. The Pharisees challenge Jesus in this text. In our denomination, in the Christian Reformed Church, there's a number of steps you have to take to become a pastor. And one of them is that you have to have a couple verbal exams. So you sit in front of a group as a candidate. There's a couple examiners, usually other pastors, who are appointed to examine you. And then there's other people who are free to come, church representatives, family, whoever. And often these are really wonderful times. They ask, you know, there's good questions, there's good discussion. We get to see how God has shaped someone for ministry and what their passions are and what their desire is to speak to God's people from his scriptures about it. It can be a really good time. But there are also times that these exams do not go so well. Sometimes it's because the candidate just, I I always think they brain freeze because I don't want to think they just are not well prepared but there are times that you get questions like, tell me a sentence or two about the book of Exodus. Uh, you know, it's a book in the Old Testament, and I haven't thought about it for a while, but it's a good book. All right, tell me a couple things about, you know, just a couple things about the Gospel of John. What's, what's unique? What's special about the Gospel of John? Uh, well, the, the Gospel of John, is, it, 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 it's about Jesus, You know, these are true answers, but they don't necessarily show a lot of depth and comprehension of the Bible or ability to bring it to the church, right? So sometimes you have that issue, but probably more often you have that the examiner asks very poor questions. My favorite leadoff question was, why should every pastor buy a dog? Why should every pastor buy a dog? If you can answer that question, talk to me after the service tonight, because I can't. But more often, you get this examiner who, he just goes on and on, and he brings in some stories from his church, and he talks about two or three Bible texts, and he talks about the last meeting we had, and he gives some sort of preliminary things, and then finally he gets to the question, and by the time he gets to the question, the candidate doesn't even understand what they're supposed to talk about. And then I've seen it that the candidate asks for clarification, and the examiner just says, well, um... Um, Well, just answer what I asked you. There's times the examiners don't even know what question they're trying to ask. And at those times, the rest of us sitting there think, you know, you probably aren't asking the right question if you don't even know what the question is here. Well, in our text for tonight, the Pharisees are giving Jesus a ministerial exam, or at least they're trying to. For all the bad press that Pharisees often get, they were very highly respected religious figures in the day of Jesus. These were very conservative, solid, theologically good folks who were trying to hang on to the old ways, trying to hang on to the truth. And so they had a lot of, they had a lot of power among the religious people of their day. And one of the ways that they exercised their power and their responsibility was that when a new teacher showed up, they would go and they would kind of check him out. They would see what he had to teach. They would see what he was doing and they would kind of see, does this guy fit? Is he in line? Is he okay or is he not? So at this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is still kind of the new guy on the scene and the Pharisees are coming to check him out. They want to see what this new teacher has to say for himself. They want to see what he's doing. They want to see if if he fits or if he doesn't. And as this part of the Gospel of Mark proceeds, we see that Jesus sees that the Pharisees, he thinks they're asking all the wrong questions. And the Pharisees think that Jesus is giving all the wrong answers. And things escalate pretty quickly in this chapter. And by the end, these guys are going out and they're plotting how to kill Jesus. As far as I know, that's never happened in one of our denominational exams, but I think there probably have been people who've been tempted. But anyway, so that brings us... To our second point for tonight. The Pharisees' reaction to Jesus in this text is representative of what the world often does. Often in response to Jesus, the world plots destruction. Often when the world really hears Jesus and really encounters Jesus, they just get to this point where they just had enough. They aren't going to take it anymore. I took a drama and debate class for a couple years in high school and we'd sometimes go to competitions with other schools, but more often it was just a classroom thing that people would put together, you know, little bits of theater, little bits of plays and perform them for the class, and then we talked through if they could do better, what they did well, or we'd throw something out there and we'd debate it and kind of see where it went. And you might guess in a class with a lot of drama people and a lot of debaters that there might be strong opinions and that they might be rather forcefully expressed. And if you'd guessed that, you'd be right. And there was this one particular day that the question got thrown out of how how strict discipline should be at school. You know, should you just get the book thrown at you the first time you did anything wrong? Or should there be kind of this mix of grace and accountability? Or should you just, I mean, just automatically get a couple free passes because everybody messes up, right? And there was a range of opinions and tempers got a little heated as they usually did during these debates. That was normal. But then there was this one person in particular, I think her name was Jane, and she was getting really, really, really intense. And as the discussion went on, she was coming down harder and harder on people should just get free passes. I mean, come on, we're not adults, we should just get a couple free passes. What's the big deal? And then she brought up a story about her brother, and her brother was a couple years younger than her, and he'd stolen a few things lately. And she said, you know, he's a good kid. I don't see why he shouldn't just get a couple free passes. And someone from the other side who was very opinionated and a little bit lacking in wisdom said, well, but if he's got this pattern of stealing things, obviously he hasn't learned and he's got a problem and something needs to be done about it. And that was the last straw for Jane. And she flipped out. My brother does not have a problem. My brother is not a problem. How could you say that? You are all such jerks. I can't believe it. I hate you. I'm, I'm leaving. And if you follow me, I'm going to slap you in the face. And she threw her books in her bag, and she walked out, and she slammed the classroom door as hard as she could, and she didn't come back for a week. That was it. She was done. Now, in this text that we read for today, when we get to the end of our reading for today, the Pharisees are done. They're throwing their books in the bag. They're walking out, and they aren't coming back until they've figured out a way that they can kill this guy. There's actually a series of five stories here. We read some of them last week, some of them this week, where the Pharisees encounter Jesus. And at the beginning, Jesus forgives, and he heals a paralyzed man then he, he um, calls a tax collector to follow him, and Levi, the tax collector, gets up and follows Jesus. And then in the text that we read for today, Jesus answers a question about fasting. He says it's okay for his disciples to eat grain on the Sabbath, and then he heals a man with a withered hand. And as these five stories proceed, there's this growing opposition, this growing sense of unrest, this growing sense that the Pharisees just can't take it anymore. In the first story, as Jesus heals the paralyzed man, the Pharisees are just thinking, what is this guy up to? Who does he think he is? In the second story, the Pharisees go and they complain to Jesus' disciples that Jesus is hanging out with sinners. In the third story, there's some people who ask a question directly of Jesus. In the fourth story, the Pharisees themselves go and they challenge Jesus, what his disciples are doing and why he doesn't have them under control. And then by the time we get to the fifth story, the Pharisees aren't even talking to Jesus anymore. They're just looking for a chance to accuse him. And then they go out and they start plotting how to get rid of him. And really, when the world encounters Jesus, that desire to get rid of him, that sense of having enough and not wanting to take it anymore, that's actually a really logical response if you encounter Jesus. If any of us, if anyone in the world really pays attention to what Jesus has to say we're going to find things that rub us the wrong way. If we really pay attention to Jesus, we listen to what He has to say to us, then we're going to be offended. And if we or if someone out in the world is never offended by Jesus, they aren't actually listening to Jesus. Jesus comes and He offers a shattering criticism of every single culture in this world. Jesus comes and he points out things that are wrong with every single person in this world. And so we shouldn't be surprised when when the world doesn't like Jesus that much. We shouldn't be surprised when people don't want to hear about it, when people don't want to hear what Jesus has to say or what he has to teach or what his view is of something. If Jesus is never offensive, then he has not yet had a real hearing. And so when we listen to Jesus, we have a choice. We can have that response that we've just had enough. We aren't going to take it anymore. We're going to say, we aren't going to listen unless you say what I want to hear. We can run away from Jesus. Or we can be like the Pharisees and we can plot how to undermine him and get rid of him. Or we can take the opposite response. We can take the opposite response and we can think about what Jesus has to say and what that actually means for our lives. So let's switch gears with this text for tonight. So far, we've been talking more about the Pharisees and their interaction with Jesus and what the world thinks about Jesus. But now, let's think about what Jesus is actually up to. Let's look at the other side of it. And basically, in this text, the common theme of these stories is that Jesus shows that he's bringing the time of celebration. Jesus is bringing the party. When he's challenged, he shows over and over again that he has brought the time of celebration. First in our text for tonight in verses 19 and 20, when people ask, why, isn't, why aren't Jesus' disciples fasting? Jesus says that he's the bridegroom. And of course, when the groom is there, the people party. The wedding is not the time to be sad or to mourn or to fast. It is time to partake. And in Jesus' time, the rules were a little different depending on the situation. But generally, the party went on for a week. And the expectation was that even the religious teachers would let their students go, and they would go, and they would all lay aside their serious business, and they would just celebrate for a full week. Jesus is not saying fasting is always bad, but he's saying that when he came, it was party time. He's saying that when he came, it was time to celebrate. It wasn't time to fast and mourn and be sad. It was time to rejoice in what God was up to. And then in verses 21 and 22, Jesus says that he's the great new thing. That's that passage about old cloth and new cloth and old wineskins and new wineskins. And honestly, it's kind of a confusing image and often we don't quite know what to do with it. But I think this is the point that Jesus is making there. Jesus is bringing something radically new. Jesus is bringing something that is absolutely, incredibly fresh and new. Jesus is greater than. He is more than. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation for everything that is going to come next. He's greater than. He's more than. And he either has to be the foundation of everything, or he will be the rock that destroys everything else. If you try to fit Jesus into the old patterns, he will shatter them. Jesus is the new pattern. He's the new thing that God is doing. And through Jesus' actions so far in the Gospel of Mark, people, the paralyzed, are being forgiven and healed. People who were tremendously enmeshed in sinful patterns just get up and leave all that behind to follow Jesus. The new king was coming. People were being set free. The season of celebration was there. And the Pharisees just didn't get that. The world still doesn't get it. But if we follow Jesus, he leads us to true joy and celebration. So for our final point tonight, let me propose some ways that we can join in what Jesus calls us to. And I think as believers, Jesus calls us both to fast and to feast. So we're going to talk about both of those things tonight. In response to Jesus, his disciples, fast and we feast. Jesus brings something new it's in line with God's plan the whole way through but Jesus marks a real step towards something new he brings real change and that means that our lives are changed if we follow Jesus and so that means that our lives should look different than other people's in fact maybe our lives should even look a little weird a little bit strange to the people out in the world The tribes we worked with in Nigeria, one of their best features was that they were really, really hard workers. They worked seven days a week, year-round if they had to, and especially at planting and harvesting time. Everybody who was able-bodied, and even if you weren't real able-bodied but could walk a little bit, you were out there in the field working as long as you could. Life didn't have a lot of margin, so people were just out in the field seven days a week, working, 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 working. So when harvest came, they'd have food. But Christians didn't do that. Christians took a day out of their week. They took Sunday, and they rested, and they worshiped on that day. Every week, they took a day of rest. And everybody else thought that was just... I mean, they thought it was just sinful. They would tell Christians, you are crazy and you are lazy and you are stupid. Taking time to rest and worship in the busy seasons, in harvest time and planting time, didn't make any sense. And it was hard. It was hard when people knew that their crops out in the field were ready to be harvested and you never knew what bug or animal or weather was going to get into them today, so you wanted to get out there. But in the other direction, you heard the church bell ringing. And it was hard. It was hard week after week to choose to go to church and to choose to follow Jesus instead of to go with everybody else in the village And get some more work done in the fields. But when people chose to follow Christ, they chose to have their lives look different. There were a lot of new things they picked up, and there were some old things that they laid down. Now in our text for today, Jesus tells the Pharisees that his disciples can't fast as long as he's with them. But a time will come when the bridegroom isn't with them, and then will be the time to fast. And in many respects today, we're in the fasting time. We're in a season of laying things down for Jesus. And so let me ask all of us gathered here tonight individually, what can or should we be laying down to follow Jesus? What disciplines can you adopt to renounce the ways of the world? What can you do to give something up so that you can draw closer to Jesus? Can you give up, even if it's just for a season, can you give up your television shows? Can you give up your social media? Can you give up a round of golf? Can you give up a vacation weekend? And you can pick a thousand different things. But is there something in your life that you can intentionally lay aside so that you can serve Jesus more fully? Maybe that means you should actually try fasting. It's a spiritual discipline that can really focus us on how God provides for us and nothing else can really satisfy so reflect on that as an individual, but also as a church. As a church, I think it's healthy for us to ask ourselves, are there things that we can put down that will help us draw closer to Jesus? Do we have insider cliques or particular practices or certain traditions that maybe they aren't bad, but maybe they aren't the most helpful thing either for us to really bring the gospel to each other into the world? Are there things that we as a church can fast from? Are there things we can give up for a time or forever to help us draw closer to God? What can we give up to draw closer to Jesus? Now, I think that's an important question, but I think also we shouldn't stop there. We shouldn't stop with what we lay down, what we put aside. We should also look at what we can do to celebrate this life that God has given us. Jesus didn't come to make us gloomy, grumpy people who never have any fun. Jesus came to set us free. In some ways, this this, uh, section of the Gospel of Mark can be read as one long party. Jesus heals a paralyzed man, and he forgives him of his sin. Jesus goes to a tax collector, to a person who's made all kinds of moral compromises, and he says to him, "'Get up and follow me.'" And Levi gets up and just goes after Jesus and leaves all that behind. And the people stand there amazed. Jesus is asked about fasting, about this discipline. And he says, it's time to party. Jesus is asked about why he isn't holding people tighter with some of the rules. And he says, it's okay. It's okay. Freedom. God gives us freedom. People are looking out for Jesus to do something a little out of line on the Sabbath, and he graciously heals a man whose life has been defined by trouble. Jesus calls us to feasting, too. In the Christian life, we are called to seriously embrace the discipline of feasting, we are called to joy. And so what can you do in your life to more deeply experience the joy that Jesus gives us? What routines can you find to celebrate? And maybe for you it means making a habit of having people, more, people over more often and just having a good time with people. Maybe for you it means deciding not to do something else so that you have more time to read the Bible, to pray, to spend time with Jesus. What things can you pick up What new patterns can you develop to help you really celebrate the joy and the freedom and the grace and the love that Jesus brings us to? And then what can we do as a church? What can we do as a church together to feast? What can we pick up? What habits can we develop? What things can we do to help us live out the joy that Jesus has given us? And as I talk about these things, I'm not saying just look at the glass, it's half full. I'm not saying just, you know, indulge in happy fantasy, we should all be optimists. I'm not saying any of that. I am saying let's make a reality-based move. Let's make a reality-based move. And the reality is that Jesus has moved us from death to life. Jesus has moved us from gloominess and hopelessness and darkness to light and life and to a party. And so in Jesus Christ, we should embrace feasting because he has transformed our lives. In Christ, there's a time for us to lay things aside. There's a time for us to fast. There's a time for us to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And we should embrace that reality. We should embrace the hard reality that following Jesus will mean challenges and suffering. But we should also embrace the reality that following Jesus means... It means refreshment. It means healing. It means freedom. It means that we belong to God forever. And so as we draw near to Jesus, we should fast and we should feast. And as we think of the Lord's Supper next week, that's one particular way that we as a church can gather together to feast. The Lord's Supper is one way that he has provided for us to come together and have a party. Now, it's just the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest foretaste. But in the Lord's Supper, we get a little, little picture of what heaven will be like. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus invites us to partake of his body and blood, to rejoice in the freedom we've been given, and to celebrate. To celebrate the reality that Jesus transforms our lives. To celebrate the reality that someday we will be with him and the party will never end. As we look toward the Lord's Supper, we should have this element of fasting, of confession, of repentance, of acknowledging that we are not good enough and we will never be good enough on our own. But as we look toward the Lord's Supper, we should also have this sense of expectation, this sense that we're going to a party, this sense that we are going to celebrate because of who Jesus is and what he does for us. Jesus brings healing to our lives. He brings restoration to our lives. And he brings us to his feast, to his eternal feast. So in all our fasting and feasting, may we each of us and all of us together draw closer to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement that you give us. Lord, we thank you that when we face hard times in this life, when the world challenges us, when things aren't going our way, when things just look so dark, we thank you for the reminder that Jesus too faced this opposition, this stubbornness, this desire to destroy all that is good. Lord, we pray that you make us strong when we face hard times. Help us to follow you even through the storms. And Lord, we thank you that even though we have times of fasting in our lives, even though we have so much that we need to lay down and so much we need to just get through, thank you that we also have times of celebration. And Lord, even in this difficult week as a church, help us to find ways to celebrate, not to pretend that life isn't hard, but to look at the deeper realities, to see the deep, deep truth that in you we have hope of a forever feast. Lord, we pray that you make the power of Jesus and of your Holy Spirit more and more obvious in our lives. Help us to depend on you more and more. Help us to see more and more who you are and how much you love us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.